this, this struggle that we have, the most distressing thing about this is that we've succumbed to the belief that covetousness is somehow not as serious as all the other sins we can struggle with. We've come to believe that covetousness is, on, is not on the same level as murder and lust. We've fallen right in line with the rest of our culture. Our society tells us that an unquenchable thirst for more is what leads to the successful life. It's how we ought to live. It's no longer just, I want it, it's, I deserve it. Our pride swells up and we look to take it as if it were our right. But Scripture tells us that this is not the way it ought to be. In Scripture, we see that the desire to have what we do not have is not insignificant. In fact, it can be very dangerous. When you and I allow ourselves to continue in this inappropriate desire for more, we disregard God and His gifts. And this disregard for God and His gifts can lead us down a path we should avoid at all costs. What happens when we disregard God and His gifts? What is the danger in such a thing? Well, today we're going to answer that question by turning to the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And there we will see the danger that there can be when we disregard God and His gifts. Will you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11? The book of 2 Samuel chapter 11. As we examine David's life, we notice God's blessings all throughout. He was just a boy when God chose him to be king over Israel. There he was out in the field tending his father's sheep when he was the youngest out of eight and was chosen to be king. God selected him. Later, when he was running for his life, God protected him and gave him victory over the Amalekites. And God acknowledged that, or David acknowledged that it was God who gave him these victories. Before he was anointed king over Judah, David asked, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And he waited for God to tell him to go. And when he did, there he was crowned king over Judah. God directed him and he received his crown. And 2 Samuel chapter 5.10 reads, and, God, and David became greater and greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. In verse 12 it reads, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. You see, David was the recipient of God's gracious gifts, and he knew it. He was honorable and righteous before God. And so when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and read its contents, we ought to be surprised at the difference that we find. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. 
and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David and the Israelite people had been at war with the Ammonites for some time. The Ammonites, once an ally to David, hired over 30,000 soldiers from Syria to help them against Israel. The Israelites were outnumbered. But Joab, the commander of the army, took the men and fought bravely against them. He won a great battle. Later, when the Ammonites regrouped with, the, with their mercenaries, David gathered his troops and fought against them until the Ammonites were weakened. The momentum was on Israel's side in the war. But the war had not yet been won. And so in the final days of the war, during the springtime, David sent Joab to finish the Ammonites. It is unusual that David did not go with Joab. As the text tells us, it was customary for the king of a country to go out to battle with his people. And, as, and David was no different than any other king during that time. David was a warrior. And throughout his life, even as king, he went out with his people to fight his enemies. Yet on this occasion, the Bible tells us that David stayed in Jerusalem. Then it happened. Look, at with, look with me at verse 2. It happened. Late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a, woman's, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. This past spring I was in Jerusalem, standing where David's palace was probably uh, most likely stood. And as I was standing there, I looked out into Jerusalem, and I noticed that Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, is not a plain. It's not a flat land. Some of the city is elevated. And so where the, where the temple would eventually stand, it's the highest place. And where David's palace and his administrative center was, it was the second highest place. And so from there, where I was standing, I could see the rest of the city descend into a slope. And from there, I could see the top of every house in the city. And so it's no wonder that on this warm afternoon, as David stood on the roof of his palace, he could see everything. As he stared out into the city, he could see the top of every house in the city. And while he stood and scanned the city, there was one particular house that made him stop. There on the top of the house, he noticed a woman bathing. And this woman was not like any other woman. This, this woman was beautiful. See, the scriptures describe very few women as very beautiful. In fact, there are only two other women who are described this way. That's Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Abigail, David's wife. And that's it. There are, no, there are no other women in the Bible who are described as being very beautiful. Bathsheba was stunning. And her body captured David's eyes and heart. He wanted her. His desire for her was strong and he felt compelled to have her. 
Who is that woman? The question consumed David. She was all he could think about. So that, so that night he grabbed one of his servants and asked him, Find out, there's a woman in the city. She's very beautiful. Find out who she is and bring her to me. And it wasn't long before the servant of David came back saying, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? See, this woman was well known. Her father, apparently a man of great reputation, and her husband, a key member of David's army. He was a member of David's mighty men, a group of legendary men who had gathered a great reputation for their heroic battles. He was a loyal man in David's own army. That he was known as the Hittite reveals that he was not an Israelite by birth but that somehow he converted to the Israelite faith and pledged his loyalty to David and served him. Bathsheba was a taken woman. She was off limits. No matter how beautiful she might be, she was married. And married to a loyal man serving in David's army. The subject should have been closed. David should have gone back to napping on his couch and moved on. But David wanted what he wanted, and he would not be denied. So David sent for her, and she came. And that night, David satisfied his desire and took what did not belong to him. To further complicate things, the narrator discloses why Bathsheba had been bathing in the first place. Here in verse 4, it says that she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. In other words, Bathsheba had just completed her menstrual cycle when she was bathing. It was a ritual bath to, un to purify her uncleanness as the law had commanded. What this confirms for us is that before her husband left and before she met David, she was not pregnant. If she conceived, there was no physical way Uriah could have fathered the child. If she conceived, the only person who could be the father was David. It was probably a few weeks from that night that David received the words. Three words that would forever change David's life. I am pregnant. These short words ensured that this could never be a one-night stand with no strings attached. Her message guaranteed that David could not simply move on. I am pregnant. Bathsheba was a married woman. And married women who were found guilty of adultery were stoned to death. On the other hand, the king was probably safe from facing death. But his honor and reputation as a righteous king and as a servant of God would be tainted. It wasn't death, but it was an inconvenience that David would rather not face. So that night, he began to plan a cover-up. And in his mind, he came up with the perfect plan. All he needed to do 
was get Uriah, her husband, back and in bed with his wife. Once he did, he could no longer be implicated as the father. And so just as David had sent for Bathsheba, David sends for her husband Uriah. Uriah, ever the loyal servant, comes to David. How are things on the battlefront? How are Joab and the rest of the men? David asked him. Joab is fine. The people are in good spirits. By God's help, we should overtake the Ammonites soon. I'm glad to hear it. Then David thanked Uriah for his dedicated service and said, Go down to your house and wash your feet. It's a euphemism. David is telling Uriah to go down and sleep with his wife. And Uriah goes. He leaves the king's presence and walks out of his house. And it appears that David's plan has worked. He called for Uriah, and Uriah came. He told Uriah to go, and he left. But look with me at verse 9 to see what happens. Verse 9 says, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. In the morning, David was surprised to hear the report from his servants. Uriah did not go down to his house. It failed. David's fail-proof plan stalled. David again called for Uriah and said, Have you not come from a long journey? How long has it been since you were home? Why didn't you go down to your house? What kind of response did David expect? Maybe it was a rhetorical question and David simply wanted to persuade Uriah to go out of the king's house and into his wife's bed. But Uriah responds. And in verse 11 he says, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servant of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I... Then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. How can the rest of, how can he rest when his comrades remained at war? How could he feast when his comrades ate from the rations at the campsite? How could he embrace his wife while they longed to be reunited with their families? He could not. He would not do such a thing until after the war. The irony of it is that while Uriah refused to go to his house, eat and drink and lie with his wife, David had done all of these things. While Uriah and all of Israel were at camp at war, David was in his home. And while they were there, he was eating and drinking and lying with Uriah's wife. Against this backdrop of David's sin, Uriah was being honorable and righteous. Not only was Uriah thinking of his comrades still at war, he was also keeping with the law. 
Israelite soldiers abstained from sexual intercourse during war because they were engaging in holy activities. Again, the irony is that Uriah was a foreigner. He was not an Israelite by birth. He did not grow up with the laws of God in his head. Yet he was more careful to heed God's word than David, the king of Israel. David was unfazed by Uriah's insistence. He thought quickly and plotted to cover his transgression with Uriah's wife. Remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. Uriah complied. That night, David had his servants prepare a great feast and invited David as a guest, or invited Uriah as his guest. And Uriah ate and drank with David. And as they ate, David kept Uriah's glass full of wine. Every time Uriah drank from the cup, it was refilled to the top. No matter how much he drank, the wine never reached the middle of the glass. For hours they ate and he drank. And when they finally finished, Uriah stumbled out of his seat and moved towards the door. David had done it. His plan to intoxicate Uriah had worked. And now he would go down to his house and to his wife. But again, Uriah did not go down to his house. Instead, he left the room and found an empty couch and slept the whole night. For a second time, David's attempt to cover up his sin failed. Early the next morning, David sat in his study a third time, plotting. And then it came to him. He wrote the words quickly and sealed the letter for Joab. And he called for Uriah. Take this letter and give it to Joab when you join him. And so Uriah left, carrying David's sealed letter with him. Uriah did not know it, but in his hand he carried his own death certificate. When he arrived, Joab took the letter and read it to himself. And it read, in verse 15, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Joab set the letter down and looked at his battle plans and proceeded to make the necessary changes. The next day, Uriah was assigned to the front lines. And as Joab besieged the city, the men of the city came out against them. And as the fighting intensified, Joab's command, Joab commanded the men to press in and continue fighting. The men, now only a few feet from the city walls, obeyed the order and pressed. But they were now at a disadvantage. For from above, archers from the opposing army shot down arrows directly at these men. And the Bible says that some of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. If it had not been planned, it would appear that the experienced commander of the army of Israel committed a rookie mistake. So when Joab prepares the messenger to inform David of the events, he anticipates his commander, or he anticipates his king, to respond harshly. 
You see, it was battle strategy 101. No knowledgeable commander would push his troops that closely to the wall and leave his troops at the uh, vulnerable to the aerial attack. So Joab tells the messenger, whatever you do, make sure you tell the king your servant Uriah is dead also. The messenger went to see the king. And when he arrived, he told the news of how fierce the battle went. The, main, the men gained advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them to the entrance of the gate. Then archers shot at your servants and from the wall. Some of the king's servants died, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. The messenger didn't know what to expect. He didn't know if the king would be angry or if he would be disappointed. He braced himself for the king's response, but the wrath never came. David looked at the messenger and said to him, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and then another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Don't worry about it, he said. Stuff like this happens all the time. That's life. Don't let it bother you. Don't let it bother you. Brave men had just given their lives and David says, don't let it bother you. These were people like you and me with families. They were brothers and fathers and husbands. They weren't just mishaps. These men were commit, had committed themselves to protect the interests of Israel and David had played with their lives as if they were some toys that he could discard. Perhaps they died reassuring themselves that they had given their lives for a just cause. But they hadn't. They had given their lives because their king didn't want to be found out. There was no remorse from David. He was cold and calculating. He had already considered this outcome. When the news of Uriah's death reached her, Uriah's wife mourned. She cried over her husband knowing that she had betrayed him and would never see him again. Again, after, more, after the mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And for David, the matter was done. He got what he wanted and more. Bathsheba was his wife and she bore him a son. And that was that. Throughout the narrative, David is emotionless, taking from and murdering Uriah as if it were no big deal at all. In order to capture David's callous heart, the narrator refrains from portraying any of the other characters' emotion as well. That is, until the very end of the chapter when we learn that God is displeased with David. There in verse 27 it says, The thing that, God, that David had done displeased the Lord. To say that it displeased God is not enough. 
Literally, the original Hebrew text reads that what David did was evil to God. Here in chapter 11, at the end, the Lord responds to this evil act and steps in to judge David. And beginning in chapter 12, it is not David who sends his servants, but it is God. And God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. Look with me in chapter 12 as I read Nathan's words to David. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but a little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he grew it up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Nathan laid before David this imaginary case and could see his face redden with anger as he told it. And as he was done, the injustice exposed in the story enraged him. And by the end of the story, he blurted, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this should die. He should return four lambs to the man to replace the one. It is disturbing to hear David blurt these words knowing the atrocities he's just committed. David standing as judge over this imaginary case of injustice is ridiculous when we think about how David, the king of Israel, took from and killed an innocent man. Nathan looked into the eyes of the king and said, David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, I gave you everything. I took you and I anointed you king over Israel and protected you from Saul when he wanted your life. I gave you your master's house and gave you all the people of Israel to rule. And if this were too little, I would have added more. Why then did you disregard me and my gifts to do evil in my sight? You murdered Uriah with violence and took his wife as your own. And now, because of this, violence will not depart from your house. Because you disregarded me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David's sin was before him. He had disregarded God and his gifts and wanted more. And this desire led him to commit more sins in taking Uriah's wife and eventually murdering Uriah. And as a result, he would face great consequences for the rest of his life. And he did. The son that Bathsheba bore would die. And if we read the rest of David's story, you'll see that his house is filled with violence. His son Abnon raped his sister Tamar. His oldest son Absalom murders Amnon because of it and later takes the throne for himself and forces David to flee from Jerusalem. Even to the end of his life, the violence continues between his son Adonijah and Solomon. 
David disregarded God and his gifts and was opened to great sins and grave consequences. It is easy for you and I to hear David's story and become disgusted with his actions. And rightfully so. What David did was heinous and evil. But if we examine ourselves carefully, we will realize that we are not that far from David. As we peer into David's life and judge his actions, we too hear the words of Nathan say, You are that man. You and I are David. We too hear the words of Nathan and we too have received God's blessing in our lives and have taken them for granted. God in His goodness has given us every good gift, including spiritual, material, and physical blessings. And yet we've allowed our desire for the things that we have not been given to cause us to disregard God and His gifts treating them as if they were insignificant or not good enough. And because of this desire for more, we open ourselves to great sins that we might continue to deal with and struggle with. It happens in all different facets of our lives, no matter where we are on this journey. If we're married, it can happen there. In marriage, we treat our spouse with indifference rather than as a precious gift given to us by God. And when we do, the sins and consequences that we open ourselves up to are significant. When we begin to lose interest in our husband or our wife, might it be because we've become ungrateful for them? When we find ourselves struggling with pornography or, or entangled in the beginnings of an emotional affair, perhaps it is because we have disregarded God's gift to us. Our discontentment begins to reproduce and birth all sorts of inappropriate desires outside of our marriage. Not only that, but what started as an as a disinterest leads to negative consequences that will affect the rest of our lives. It's not just us that are affected, it's our family, it's our kids, it's our friends. We open ourselves up to great pain and disappointment. But discontentment in relationships isn't limited to marriage. It can be present in our singleness too. Whether we are in a committed relationship or not, in singleness, we become dissatisfied with not being married and also look to satisfy those desires before it is appropriate. Like David, we pursue what we want and take it before God has given it to us. And that too will lead to serious consequences. It can happen with other gifts as well. Disregarding God's gift of provisions for our needs, we become dissatisfied with our jobs and want more money or recognition. And in the process, we stop working onto the Lord and start working onto ourselves. What can I do to get more noticed? What can I do to show up the person next to me? Worst 
about all of this is that the more dissatisfied we are in the gifts, the more dissatisfied we are in God Himself. There is nothing that can satisfy our souls except God. Whenever we look to what we don't have, we go down a path that will never leave us fulfilled. It is only in God that we can find rest from our dissatisfaction. Disregarding God and His gifts is dangerous. It opens us to great sin and grave consequences. But when we come to God to satisfy us, we find that the God who is the giver of all good things will also give us grace and forgiveness. No matter how far we've gone down the path of great sin and grave consequences, God is able to forgive our sins. David, the man who had taken a married woman, committed adultery, and murdered her husband to cover it up, came to this realization. With his sin laid before him by God, David's only response was to confess and say, I have sinned against the Lord. Not against Bathsheba, not against Uriah, not against the people of Israel, but against the Lord. His sin was great before a holy God. He deserved death. And that is what you and I deserve because every one of us has sinned before the holy God. Our just punishment is death. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us the greatest gift of all. His Son is our replacement lamb to satisfy the punishment that we deserved. And just as he told David, you will not die when you and I trust in Jesus. The punishment of death was placed on our Lord. and We do not have to receive it. You will live because of my son Jesus, God says to us. If you have not trusted in Jesus, would you do so today? I pray that you would realize the wretched state that you are before God and accept this free gift of grace. How can you and I avoid dissatisfaction with God and His gifts? You and I can avoid it by acknowledging the things that we have been given and giving thanks for them. We We may not feel like doing it, but doing the simple act of Listing God's blessings in our lives and praising God for them will protect us from further harm. If you're having problems in your marriage, make a list of the things you are thankful for concerning your spouse. If you're having trouble being satisfied in your singleness, make a list of the many opportunities you have to serve the Lord. Praise God. The greatest remedy to dissatisfaction is thanksgiving. You see, when we disregard God and His gifts, we open ourselves to great sin and grave consequences. But glory to God that He is able to forgive our sins when we come to Him and receive His grace.
Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your graciousness, Lord. We thank you that you are in fact the giver of all good things and that you have satisfied us, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for the times when we have become satisfied with other things that can only leave us empty, Lord. We pray that you would help us, Lord, and that you would fill us and that you would call back to memory the things that you have given us so that we might be able to praise you. We thank you, Lord, and pray for your help and guidance. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.